My name is Sophie Tolhurst and I'm the assistant editor of FX magazine. This is Talking Spaces, FX's new podcast series. FX magazine covers interior design and architecture, focusing on the contract design industry. We speak to those who design the spaces and places in which we spend our lives. The offices, schools, hospitals, shops and more. We're interested in all that goes into designing those spaces and want to talk about it. We were making this podcast while the COVID-19 pandemic spread across the world. The way it has displaced us from our usual environments means we think these environments are worth talking about more than ever. The places which have been designed to meet and talk are currently off limits, whether that be a meeting room or a therapy room. There are also those informal spaces where more intimate conversations might take place. Consider the toilet. A report from bathroom experts Armitage Shanks found that 28% of people in the UK use their work bathrooms to escape from the office environment, while 25% use it to speak to colleagues. Along those lines, also consider the kitchen and the stairwell and how we make space within them. What was that? Oh, that was just Hans Hallein inflating his mobile office. Invented in 1969, essentially a portable workspace in the form of an inflatable cylinder, giving you just enough space to sit and work on your laptop in peace. A predecessor of today's meeting pods and booths that might come in handy during the lockdown. But for now, we're isolated in our homes and finding new ways to connect. For us at FX, this podcast is a first, and we hope that you can take some time out and enjoy this first episode, A Space to Talk. My two guests for this podcast are Laura Lee, Chief Executive of the charity Maggie's, which provides special cancer care centres adjacent to hospitals, and Lionheart, the first ever poet in residence for a number of major architecture practices. With Laura, we talk about how Maggie's has been transforming the way we design for healthcare since its first centre opened in 1996. Its founder, Maggie Keswick Jenks, believed in the ability of architecture to make dealing with cancer more manageable. And the charity now has a legacy of outstanding spaces designed by a roll call of the world's biggest architectural names, such as Frank Gehry, Richard Rogers, Thomas Heatherwick, and Zaha Hadid, to name just a few. But first, for a bit of mental space, we speak to Lionheart. He is a poet and spoken word artist, BBC Radio London presenter, and TEDx speaker, but he first trained as an architect before moving into poetry. Lionheart has now returned his attention to the built environment, feeling there is space for a different kind of conversation about the way it is designed. In 2014, Lionheart co-founded a popular monthly event called Subjectivity UK, which brings different individuals and perspectives together for conversation in a safe space. Now, reflecting on the impact of conversation, poetry and architecture in his own life, he has been tying some of these ideas together. Lionheart works with architects using poetry to explore their approach, ideas of emotional inhabitants of space, and to work through collaborative design to explore how environment can promote mental well-being. Not everyone saw the value of his work at the start, but he has now had residencies at a number of practices, such as Grimshaw, PLP Architecture and Squire and Partners, as well as the Building Centre and the Saatchi Gallery. For many, the current period has provided time and space to rethink things. This might mean having different conversations around your work 
and your ways of working. Speaking to Laura Lee and Lionheart about their own work suggests what might be done if only you give yourself space to have these different conversations. Here's Lionheart. So this podcast is conceived of as a space to talk, and I'm talking to you today about how you've been creating those spaces for Mm. people, whether it's with Subjectivity UK, with poetry, spoken word, and then recently your work with architecture practices. So can we go back a bit first and talk about yourself? Poetry and spoken word created a space for you in the first place, am I right? Yeah, um, I was someone who was, how would you say, an extreme hyper introvert, if that's a thing, if I can coin that together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I guess poetry was the medium of me uh, becoming brave enough and courageous enough to speak out and speak speak towards people that were a negative confliction towards myself. Uh-huh. And um, it, it's really weird. I remember being in university and watching all these um, American spoken word performances on like Deaf Poetry Jam. And I was like, wow, they're like pouring their heart out on stage in front of people they don't even know. Like that's, that's power to me. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just clicked into my head at the moment that this is something I wanted to explore. And I was already writing poetry, I guess, to understand myself in university, which was, I guess, it's the uh, the era where people tend to find themselves through studying a subject that they kind of didn't want to study, but ended up wanting to study it. And um, I was writing to really, I guess, understand how cognizant I was of self-awareness and how the world was affecting me because of either parental environments, social environments, or just the whole needing to aspire and become something that people valued. So spoken word allowed me to, I guess, tap into these internal dialogues I was having with myself, but then give me the momentum and the, in some ways, bravado to really to say, this is how I feel and it's going to exist outside of my head. And you were studying architecture yeah. then, but you decided to leave that. So my dad said to me, he disagrees, but I can remember it verbatim. He was like, <laughs> don't study architecture, I'm kicking you out of the house. And I guess when I finished the degree, I felt like I had the license to do what I wanted to do mm-hmm. because I did, I guess, the last thing on his checklist of things that he wanted his son to be to. And again, you want your children to succeed in the world, so you mm-hmm. want to give them a certain amount of tools to exist. But for me, once I finished the degree part, I haven't done the whole seven years. So like, don't call me an architect because <laughs> that's illegal. But um, no, it was, it, was a, it was a turning point in my life where I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take something from architecture and build myself. Right, I actually designed who I want to become because I felt like up until that point, environmental factors and parental factors and other psychological factors construed me to being something I didn't want to be and I wasn't happy with. So did you have a sense that you might end up working with architects again? No, I thought I, was, I ran away from it for good. <laughs> I, really, I really thought I ran away for good. And um, it was only till I became really aware, deeply aware of how space was affecting me and I started asking my friends like what they did during their depression, what spaces do they go to? Mm-hmm. Um, do they go to spaces which make them feel better or those spaces that make them feel like they fit in with their environment? And it was tend to be in the latter. People tend to find spaces that incubated that dark feeling that they went through. So I just did my own personal research because I was aware of how places like the Barbican, which I championed so mm. much, so, so much because <laughs> it really shifted my um internal culture how I spoke to myself and how I allowed my environment to shift certain things so like there's a a consistent negative um self-depreciating dialogue that I have in my head which I'm working on it's getting better by the year 
But when I was in the Barbican, that was silenced, if not mitigated. So it was really interesting for me to do personal research, which allowed me to find how other people sought out poetic spaces or spaces that had unintentional factors of well-being, which made them feel good. So I wanted to find out what are these correlations and consistencies in design and space that, I guess, uh, could facilitate people to feel good and to speak up about how they felt. So what form did that research take? Was that when you started going in? That's when I started doing like be my geek mode and I'm a Virgo. So whenever I like something, I'm hyper analytical and just (laughs) over analyzing everything. And um, that was roughly around four and a half years ago, if I'm correct. But I just really started to do this by myself. And it wasn't me reaching out to architecture firms. It wasn't me doing any sort of cold emailing. It was literally how do I become immersed in learning more and being curious about the people already doing the work. And then I said, okay, This stuff is happening in a quite um, measured format. I want to study the emotional relationship to this data and do it my own way as an artist rather than being a researcher. I want to be the artistic researcher of this um, Mm -hmm. field. And that started three years ago. So that was when I started formally reaching out to architecture firms and saying, hey, this is is where I want to take it. This is the research that I'm really interested in. And I feel like it can affect people in such a positive, impactful way only if you give me the space. So it was, it was a, an exchange of space in a way. Okay, I like it. Um, so, that, so that first time, I've mm. heard you just walked up to a practice, right? Yeah, literally through the door. It was in Hackney somewhere. Okay. And I just remember seeing models to the left of me. It was going towards, I can't remember the theater's name. And um, I was like to my friends, one, one second, this is just random, one second. And I could have been late for the theater, <laughs> which was just like totally not in my mind at the time. And I just walked in and I can't remember if I spoke to the um, staff at the time, or it was the actual um, director, and it was Michael Scranz, who's mm-hmm. Michael Scranz's design and architecture. And um, I just said to him, hey, uh, <laughs> it, was re- it was really warm how he received me. I think when I mentioned here, I don't want money, he was like, yeah, I'm in. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but he was a really, really cool, yeah, so it was a good one. really, really cool guy. And um, him and his staff were just open to facilitating me um, for that experience. And that opened so much because initially I felt like those spaces wouldn't welcome me because why do architects need poets, right? That's mm-hmm. the first thing that you think, why would you need poets? But they were really enthusiastic and that kind of gave me the uh, momentum and the encouragement to continue pushing it forward. So once that was under my belt, I reached out so much more to the building center, Bajak um, English group, all these mm-hmm. places. And then slowly but surely, I opened up my own learning because now I'm on a uh, primary research is more about me speaking to someone individually rather than researching through a book. So are you still knocking on doors? Or are Ooh. they coming to you? Um, they're definitely coming to me now, which yeah. is great. Um, <laughs> and again, when you spend three years into something, it's really refreshing to know that your email is going crazy. I guess that's always the way, right? You have to chase until someone wants you. Yeah. And I think what I realized was, and this maybe stemmed into like my career as a poet, learning that the value I think I have is something that I may only see, learning how to teach other people the value that I've placed on myself and I've placed on the profession and I've placed on my art. That's something which I think press does really well. I I think Mm -hmm. how you present your content to the world is really interesting. And also the connection between the product designer and the consumer. You really need to convey the value that you, you present in any field. And I think it took me roughly two years to finally convey that value and, and the value to people, mm-hmm. not just design and architecture, but what my work does with people mm-hmm. and how that intentionality can allow architecture to be um, enriched through poetry. 
So can you tell me a bit about how that works mm. when you go into a practice? Ooh, Who are you speaking cool. to? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, it's probably easier for me to go on um, the one that I've spent the most time with, which is Grimshaw, Grimshaw mm -hmm. Architects, who I have the most love and I'm, I'm besotted over that firm. They just really brought me in and made me feel like home. I went to their New York offices and their London offices. And um, I guess I guess the brilliant thing about Grimshaw was they allowed me to design a very bespoke approach to doing a poet in residency, which meant that I could design my own workshops. So there was a workshop plan designed around uh, creating a floor plan for your personality and seeing how other people would engage with you as a person psychologically in floor plan. It was great. Like they annotated certain personal background stories, what you have to do, meet me at the entrance. There was so much depth to it, which I thought was really interesting. Um, they also allowed me to design a, a poetry workshop, which was taking stimulus from previous architects who existed and passed away and the quotes that propelled them to thinking something and then designing a poem based on that quote and then designing a form. So a built form around that as well, which is just it's great because there's a question which I always ask architects, which is design the person you love or describe them as a building or interior space. And it usually just rocks them. It's great. Like <laughs> it, I just love the reactions you get. It showed me that you can personify emotions in a built space towards a built capacity. And it's really unique when you hear someone, I'm not going to do that to you right now, I'll put you on the spot and you'll be like, oh, what's going on? But um, <laughs> they really gave me a bespoke way of really tackling, I guess, personal issues within each individual. So I could have one-to-one -one sessions that would last an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. I would go away for two months, probably come back, maybe two to three months because there was a lot of people that I was speaking to each day and then come back with the poems and revisit them and do an exhibition based on the work that I did. Like they pasted all my poems around the offices. So it's really different ways of, I guess, capitalizing what poets do and what I do as a poet, but also engaging with the personal and experiential and preferential biases that architects or people within the built environment have, putting that into poetic form and allowing that to be the communication tool between other staff and other architects about what intentions form into their work and how they engage with people. Every residency that I do with an architecture firm is so different. Hmm. There are core features that I want to bring through because that's the uh, the formula that I, I design, but I'm very open to becoming flexible and malleable to working with how that structure works. Like I just came back from Snohetta, which wasn't mm -hmm. a residency. It was more of like a playful way of me working with them. And that was totally different. Like we did like landscape poetry architecture. It was just awesome. You must be learning a lot. Doing a, a heap. So there's like an archive that I'm developing right now uh -huh. in my Dropbox, which if that fails, I'm ruined. Um, and it's got at least 150 architects and people in the built environment and poems and all the stuff that I've learned about them individually and how yeah so there's an archive hopefully at one point it's going to be released into the world as like a, a download link or mm -hmm. maybe I don't know I might I might do it as a book I'm in conversations with people but it depends on how that is developed yeah, yeah. so how receptive are architects and designers to it now or when I first started <laughs> okay, <a bit> of <laughs> uh, when I first started yeah, uh, there wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a magnetism towards the work that I was doing. And I guess, like I said, I, I understood that sometimes it requires people to see the experience before you can write it in an email and they get it or even have a phone call conversation, which I had with a variety of firms. So there was definitely a reluctance initially. Um, 
even though at the time I was like, listen, I'm applying for funding. Don't worry about the money. Like I'm applying to Arts Council. Shout mm -hmm. out to Arts Council. They're developing your creative practice. They allowed me to get funded last year. But um, there was a lot of people who weren't really interested, which is, I guess, speaks to their intentions and what they want for their staff, but also architecture overall. Whereas for me now, I feel like people have now seen the benefits of, of putting in place someone who doesn't have the um, orthodox approach to design and thinking. As much as I've had an architectural background in education, primarily I'm an artist. What have you taken away from the residencies? Ooh, which one? Um, when I was in Japan and I had the pleasure of speaking to architects like Yoshimada from Tato Architects, mm -hmm. um, uh, Tezuka Architects, who is a husband and wife who put together a firm, firm sorry, and um, I got a chance to speak to Kengo Kumar and Junior Shigami. And those individual residencies showed me how unique of a perspective culture can embed in terms of how you think. And it sounds quite simple and surface level, but it was only when I visited Japan for the first time and saw how rooted they are in, in the nuance of perspective. When you're in a Western country, the UK, you tend to fit into the environment in terms of way of thought, even though we all have our different approaches, but they are so different in how they reference their thought process and they reference design and they reference how they are speaking about love and partnerships, design and, and, and putting things together in a, uh, in a haptic sense of being able to touch and see beyond the touch. It was just so profound to me. And I came back thinking, why am I accepting a notion or a thing that I've been instructed to think around a topic or an idea or a relationship? There are so many more um, opportunities to look at something. Why have I been comfortable with just this convinced path? And seeing how they would like just be so charismatic and calm, there was no like overt egotism in how they were conveying something. It was just very, hmm, this is why I think the way I think justified it, justified that justification and allowed me to explore their understanding and expressing that to me. I don't necessarily get as much in the, I guess, the Western way of looking at things. And it really made me realize I have to become more malleable in, in how I think. And yeah, that, that's what I want to do. Like you mentioned subjectivity. Like for me, that's a space that changes every month. You can never go to a show and it's the same as it was even though the topic is different, it's how we approach it. I'm always challenging myself and my co-founders always challenging me to say like, what can we do in this space that the topic needs? Not what the structure needs, what the topic needs. And it's, I guess, designing it from the inside out, which helps me. That's what, cool, that's what Japan did. It helped me design myself from the inside out rather than the Western way that I grew up in allow me to design myself from the outside in. So to jump back, because you brought up subjectivity, mm -hmm. can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. How it started? So usually I let my co-founder, um, Charles yeah. Red, talk about this, but um, me and him met probably around eight years ago. We met at an event and I was performing, got the most, I won't say ridiculous, but it was like everyone was standing up screaming. I had marriage proposals. It was it was crazy, literally. And I was just like, whoa. I mean, hey, I'm not married, so maybe not, <laughs> not that lucky. But um, yeah, he was he was definitely um, an individual in that space that connected with what I was saying and how I expressed myself. And that was definitely in my raw 
um, provocative days of me just saying, this is how I feel. Ah. But he ended up being someone in that same event who stood up and spoke. And there was definitely like a kinship of where we was in our lives. Like we definitely met eye to eye emotionally and psychologically at that point. He was probably the only friend I had who I was comfortable speaking to on a day-to-day -day basis around issues my other friends weren't. Like type of issues that my friends would like marginalize outside of their head and just push it to one side and say, that can stay over there. We're not gonna engage in dissecting what that is. But he was so interested in it. I was so happy that someone else was interested in it. So we just had that mutually beneficial conversation. Then we just said to ourselves, similar to probably how this kind of came to conception, which is like, why aren't we doing a podcast? Like, why aren't we creating a space where there are there clearly are more of us out there, we just don't know where they are. So why don't we do something to, I guess, uh, be like a landmark for conversation and dialogue? So I'm a very, like I said, I'm a Virgo. I literally came back a day or two later saying, look, here's a structure, here's the name. There's a, there's a venue over there, we can do it, let's do it. Ah! And he's very methodical. So we started to work with each other and break it down. And it was like, cool, here's the date, let's work towards it. And it was January, I think, 2014. And we just started to build from then. And we just used our networks. And all of a sudden, every show was sold out. We just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing the, the the boundaries of what we thought our social circle could be. And now it's like a, just to put it succinctly, a platform providing a safe space for conversation, but we engage with our audience in a very immersive way. So instead of you looking at the panelists as people who are like on a hierarchical level of their intelligence, the audience is our, is our panelists. They provide all the information, the provocation, the, the dissection, they provide so much um, quality to the discussion that in some cases we don't need anyone to come in. We just need to facilitate how we can work with each other. And even if we disagree, because there's a lot of disagreements that happen, right? It's called subjectivity. There's so many subjective ways of approaching yeah, something. Okay. But it's seeing the, even if it's really minute, like the commonality in what we're thinking and how we're thinking. And that provides, I guess, the, uh, the incremental growth of our thought process. So yeah, that's what that is. It's definitely like a, an immersive hub for conversation. And you spoke a bit about designing the space for the mm. conversations to happen. Mm -hmm. On what level do you mean that? So we, me and my um, co-founder Charles, we have this um, phrase, we call ourselves social architects. And like there's so much work that I think people can do. Like I love the whole idea of understanding emotional intelligence. There are resources out there to learn how to approach that. So there's NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, there's um, love languages, there's so many different like Essays of Love by um, Alain de Botton, right? There are areas where you can engage in reading and you will learn that the tools that you currently have are probably a level two compared to what they could be. Me and him come together and be like, how do we approach this situation when we feel this way? How have we observed our friends, colleagues, our parents, the elders? Like, how do we see what they do, break it down and discuss what has been the most beneficial way of approaching that? Like, our next show is, uh, is it? chemistry when um, pleasure is a problem that we now have to dissect all these ways that we've approached pleasure and chemistry and also like this is so much dissection that happens which is why we need a whole month to plan the show but um yeah that's how, that's how we do it so how much of that do you think you take into the work you do separately on your own a lot yeah a heap of it um i guess in a in a selfish way subjectivity allows me to uh be taught by others because it's not a place where I have this overarching narrative that I want to give to the hundred plus people. It's 
let's have uh, let's have a, a lesson plan through conversation and I want to be a student but you have to be a student too so in some ways we're all teachers but everyone's here to learn and that has seeped into how I engage with people um, I'll give you this right so during the architecture residencies one thing that I've realized is my tone my energy my approach I need to mirror people as much as I'm not changing who I am I need to mirror what they are bringing to this to the table to the experience and some people already have walls up I'm going to greet them with a wall and slowly but surely we're going to break that down together like there's a, a series of 23 questions that I've structured for that one hour session and it usually goes on a different tangent because each person at a certain point says I don't need this anymore let me open up so I've taken that from subjectivity how to um, resonate with an individual I haven't met before and then slowly take away all the facades that we don't need you'll be aware of you know conversations about well-being generally mm -hmm. yeah. in architecture and design mm -hmm. in terms of the work they're producing mm -hmm. and you were brought in as part of a, a wellness week or month that was i think at grimshaw yeah i think yeah. i was at grimshaw yeah how do you feel that what you do fits into those conversations in some way it's a perfect alignment you know how like there are certain albums that come out, like I can't remember the name of the Kanye West album that came out and he was trying to challenge culture and how we perceive music and even like why certain songs are made for radio. I think that at some times you provide something which doesn't have an alignment with culture in a way we're ready to receive information or music or art. Whereas now our minds are really opening up in terms of how we are affected as people, as individuals, as couples, as whatever. So there is definitely an alignment now because people are focusing on things which they didn't particularly focus or invest in before. Now there's a social, financial investment into wellness, which allows me to do this work in a way which can go so much more further than me just doing it by myself. So yeah, there's definitely a mutually beneficial alignment in terms of them making space for my work within what they do. Again, I would speak towards Grimshaw. Like they, they, create, they create so many spaces for... They've got like a new team for diversity, inclusion. They've, they just make space and dialogue for everything. So it's not something that you enter a space now and just, oh, you exist here. It's like, no, you can participate and contribute to how we can do things differently and challenge things. And even the idea of having me as a resident showed everyone else, like we're prepared to do things differently should it be of benefit to you. And that gave me a relief and, and an understanding that I don't think the hours culture is everywhere. I think that there are certain people who are now realizing, having the conversation, seeing how beneficial it can be for you. I think somewhere in the world right now, they're doing four days a week for architecture um, stuff. And I think that's powerful, man. You can still get the same amount of work done. It's only challenging, I guess, when it comes to deadlines. <laughs> and you need to have to have something done by a certain time. So I do get why the traditional ways of looking at our culture and architecture firms was beneficial because you're working on such stringent timeframes and demands but um yeah people are people and i guess not making them feel like they're um, imprisoned to a work hour culture is really helpful so i'm happy to see those changes happen what do you think would be a good plan both for the architecture community and also those working in poetry and spoken word who might want to reach out to someone else i think tyler this is a space to talk right that's what everyone needs mm-hmm 
architecture firms, poets, creatives, they need a space to talk. As a poet, the majority of my time is spent in isolation. So the residencies are such a refreshing moment for me. Speaking to the mentors, you're just right now speaking of you, it's like, this is so refreshing. Like you replenish your, 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 your mental welfare. And I think that having a space to talk opens you up in such a, uh, a comforting way that you almost enable yourself to be someone else through conversation. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're, you just got handed a script of being a better human because now it's no longer your, your engagement with yourself, which is usually toxic and hostile. It's now a conversation with someone else. See who you really can be. So yeah, create a space to talk. Good advice. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been really refreshing for me to talk to you. design industry it is not business as usual. Factories and studios are closed, supply chains disrupted and the cancellation of major events such as Salone del Mobile. Many companies have decided to turn their skills and redundant factories to address the more urgent needs of the pandemic. They have dedicated their time and converted their machinery to produce masks, gowns, ventilators and other medical essentials. Companies I'm used to looking at for their lighting or furniture designs are now sharing information about masks they are making for key workers. BDP has worked on the NHS Nightingales, converting exhibition centres and stadiums into temporary hospitals in London, Cardiff, Bristol and Manchester, while Squint Opera has worked with Italian architect Carlo Ratti to create the Curapods, converting shipping containers into intensive care units. Others are spending their time offering online workshops, crits and webinars. In more normal times, design is still at the heart of healthcare, in the pages of FX, you'll have seen projects such as the new Royal Papworth Hospital by HOK. Such examples are still few and far between. Maggie's centres were an early outlier, as spaces for cancer support adjacent to hospitals, their environments and consequently what they offered visitors, contrasted starkly with the usual hospital environment. I spoke to Laura Lee, the Chief Executive of Maggie's on the phone recently, about the charity's ongoing work in this area. The Maggie centres are places that are on hospital grounds adjacent to the cancer centre where the bulk of people from a local area would go to for their cancer treatment. And it distinguishes itself by being its own building, but its own sort of special space and environment that says we're not a hospital, we're a place to help you deal with emotional and psychological and practical impact that cancer has on people's lives, not just the person with cancer, but their family and friends. So people come into our centres for a whole array of different sorts of support, from understanding about their cancer, for help with financial worries, uh, talking to a psychologist, and, and to being with others who understand what they're going through and getting that peer-to-peer -peer support. That sounds like a really essential service. Um, so could we go back and talk a little bit about how the idea first started? So it started with a, a woman called Maggie. Yes, um, Maggie was a woman who had um, diagnosed with breast cancer. And five years later, her breast cancer returned. 
And it was when she had the return of her breast cancer that she was told not only does she not have long to live, but um, I think through that process of hearing that news and then adapting to what treatments were available to her, started to wonder why the NHS didn't help people to help themselves and them to help support their family and friends with the sort of psychological and, and emotional aspects of, of cancer. And so she had this idea that there should be a place for people to come to for that support. And then because she herself had studied architecture and worked as a landscape designer and was married to Charles Jenks, who was an architectural kind of writer and critic, she also talked about the environment within which the hospital care was provided in and the place that she had envisaged um, should be and feel. And, and she talked very much about that hospitals um, were places that could finish you off just by the strip lighting and the corridors and the uh, colour palette. And, and, and she thought the hospital should be the opposite of that. The environment could and should support that sense of positivity about coming to visit the hospital. So it was both learning from her hospital environmental experience and then drawing on her understanding of the role that architecture could play in health and well-being and quality of life. You were there right at the beginning because you started off as her nurse, right? I was lucky enough to be her cancer nurse and to administer her chemotherapy and be alongside her in that role for 18 months that she went on to live after her recurrent diagnosis. Mm. And so I had to listen to Maggie describe not only the deficits within the NHS, but be inspired by her thoughts and ideas as to what Maggie's could do to make a difference to people's lives going through cancer going forward. And what did you think to what she was saying then? So I thought that there was a lot of merit around what Maggie was going to do, but I didn't at all at the outset really comprehend or understand what the role of architecture and what how places, um, if, if they were designed differently, could do to providing care. I was a classic NHS worker, the environment was really relevant. It was about the professional capability of the team. I was sceptical, perhaps, but open to Maggie's insistence that architecture would have an important part to play in how the centres provided support. And of course, I've been proven over many years that Mm -hmm. the environment does actually help us deliver our care. I started as the first employee in uh, Maggie Centre and the same cancer patients who I had been looking after in the hospital came over to the centre to visit me to find out what the centre was up to and what it was offering. Mm. And I had no new professional uh, skills at this point. But what I learned very quickly that there was something about the environment that meant that they started to tell me some of the worries and concerns and challenges that they were facing in their lives that they had never shared with me before whilst working as a clinical nurse specialist in the NHS environment. So that was the start of my understanding that the environment could help with communication, could help with being able to provide um, and support. Must make a huge impression that immediate reaction. Could you tell me about creating the first Maggie Centre? Absolutely. Very sadly, Maggie died before the construction mm-hmm. work for our centre started. 
the good luck was that Maggie was able to identify our very first architect and had worked with uh, Richard Murphy and um, mm-hmm. an Edgeworth architect on the designs for the for the centre. So she had already, I suppose, imprinted with um, Richard on the starting point of Maggie's. And now you've grown, you've got 26 centres and five more on the way, is that right? We have 23 centres operational here in the UK and the wonderful Amanda Levitz uh, centre in Southampton mm-hmm. under construction. And we have three centres overseas in Barcelona, Tokyo and, and Hong Kong. So there's quite an extensive brief that you send out to architects. How similar is that to the first Maggie's? The architectural brief that we give our architects is fairly unchanged. I think the only real element that has developed and evolved is it um, wasn't initially that we understood the importance of the landscape being designed integrally and together with the architect rather than the landscape being done as a as a second project when the building was was completed and then I think we've we've added in the odd practicalities like um, we'd like to be able to change the light bulb and then I think one of the things that we often get um, that people when they read our architecture brief are often surprised by is that it's less about the function of the building and of course the function matters in terms of you know we need Mm -hmm. toilets but it's very much emphasizes and draws on how we want the building and the different spaces um, that we need to how we want them to make people feel and I feel very strongly in my experience of being alongside all the different architects working on each Mm -hmm. center is that you have to get that feeling injected into the design right from the outset it's very very hard to correct that at the end of a, a building construction how do you make sure that happens well, with, with a lot of dialogue, patience and time, the luxury and the understanding as a client that um, design can't be, be rushed because it needs a, the iterative process in order to ensure that you have captured the right elements. And part of it is light and materiality and also how to create the element of surprise, elements of beauty, um, which is a, a word I think mm-hmm. people find hard to kind of comprehend spaces can be distracting in a curious making way I think creating curiosity um, is what can make an environment feel like a place that you want to be in because it it helps you know that you are valued and you matter and so they're all they're all quite sort of emotive words but you sort of over time start to feel that the the design of the building that the architect has been working on sort of captures those those different elements. That's fascinating. So as a client, how do you work with the architects for each centre and how do you choose who you're going to work with? I think we are not an easy client and so we're upfront with architects about the fact that it is a that we're an involved challenging in a in a sort of positive um, perspective and I think we ask our architects to to really involve themselves in the brief it's not about what they think they could do it's about making sure that using their talent and expertise to achieve the brief's objectives. And so I think most architects really engage in an excited um, and are stimulated by the brief because it's it's very challenging. And and part of what makes it challenging is our buildings are quite small. Mm. So every element of the building has to work. 
um, you can't afford to have a corridor with a back office unit or section that you can sort of forget about and not worry about. Every bit has is interconnected and has to work to creating the overall um, impact of the centre. So I think most of our architects would say that this is one of the hardest briefs and design projects that they've, they've, they've worked on. They all come forward and take the challenge with, with relish. We were advised quite early on by the wonderful um, Piers Goff, mm -hmm. who told us to be a lazy client. And so we don't run competitions. We take our time to look at people's works and to talk to people about different architects' works. And then we also take the time to think about the site-specific um, challenges that working on hospital grounds, which often prove to be the most difficult sites. Um, they're often in the middle of a car park or they've mm -hmm. got no light or nature. And so we're also give consideration to which architect could best respond to that particular um, site challenges. So we work with Stephen Hall on our wonderful centre at Barts because and we knew he understood um, how to complement a grade one listed building with contemporary architecture. And he was also wonderful about how to bring and utilise light in what is a, a very sort of grey and homogenous kind of light environment. And then we worked with the wonderful Thomas Heatherwick on and most difficult site, which was in a steep slope, only patch of grass next to a multi-storey car park saying to him, we want this to be the best garden this hospital's ever seen. Mm -hmm. And um, he understood how to respond to that challenge. So it's partly thinking about the site and then the right architects who we believe will give the, the best response to those site challenges. And they, and they all, each and every one of the Mandy Centre sites then offer something unique on that front. Mm, I bet. You mentioned landscape and place. And I read in the brief that there's a certain connection to the local community. Could you talk a bit about how that works? So we wanted Maggie Centres to be places that the local community would understand and know and value. In our Dundee uh, Centre, which is still the only Frank Gehry building, mm. and the first Frank Gehry building in Scotland. So it mm. is very um, proudly admired and loved by the local Dundee community because he chose to build there. It's also loved because it's this uh, quirky, could be a Scottish bossy in mm. a contemporary fashion. And also what Frank's building offers is a sense of that it's, it's okay to uh, talk about cancer, to acknowledge that you have cancer, and it's okay to say that you need to have help um, to help yourself have the best outcome for you and your family as you're going through whatever the cancer brings for you. And so the architecture and architects offers something uh, truly inspiring to the community. And alongside Frank's building in Dundee, we have a wonderful Arabella Lennox Boyd's landscape, and she's created this wonderful uh, labyrinth. And we have art, and um, we have mm. the Anansi Gormley's um, statue outside, which has been nicknamed as the Urwili of the North by the, um, the local community. And, and then as you come inside the centre, we have some wonderful uh, tapestry by um, Eduardo Palozzi. And so it's the intercombination of the community learning that architecture can actually be of value. And I think so much in today's society, great architecture is often within the corporate and institutional space where the general public 
doesn't get to see or access or feel that it's working for them. Mm-hmm. And there's a great sort of love that Maggie's are creating special places for the general public who are vulnerable and are in a challenging point of their life. Absolutely. Is the architect also responsible for the interiors and furniture? No, and often that's possibly the point where as client and, and architect um, have a degree of tension. Mm-hmm. And we certainly work with them and do it in conjunction with the architect. But we have a slightly unprofessional approach to the interior where we take our time in getting the combination of the right furniture and art um, to the crockery, to the glasses, the cutlery. Um, but it is a moment of tension because these are spaces that we want people to feel they can come into and make themselves comfortable. And that might be about having to find a chair that is comfortable for them, a chair that is moved to accommodate them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a classic saying of the saber-toothed tiger. You know, we like to have our backs to the wall. We like to be able to see what's going on, even if we're sitting from a distance. So finding those pockets of and creating interior moments where people can sit in their own and observe what's going on for Maggie's kitchen table is a sort of critical kind of meeting point, if you like, in the centre. But some people might want to sit apart, to sit privately, to go into a, a quiet room. And so how the interior works um, to, to allow people to, to make themselves at home in the different spaces that they might need based on their emotional state and feeling and how they're actually using the centre at the time, whether or not that's seeing the psychologist for a very difficult conversation or talking about the deeply sort of private aspects of worrying about money. So the interiors has to work quite hard for us in different, different levels. So that's something that you've established internally. Do you have an internal team for that? It is myself and Marsha Blakeman has... <laughs> I've been a trustee and a, and a great friend of Maggie's who has worked with me as a co-client on all of our buildings, working with the architect and and we have a, an in-house architect now with us, um, Diego, who helps us with that. And mm-hmm. we also work with uh, Mary Wigan from Coexistence who helps us with finding the right furniture and the fabrics and materials for our furniture and, and, and sort of cushions. Um, mm-hmm. We love rugs we like natural materials Mm -hmm. we don't have any institutional signs so we have to use different mechanisms if a door is closed and that means that um, it's at work and it's private um, and people just respect the closed door but when a door is open then people can go in and use the space so we've found and had to find mechanisms to allow Mm -hmm. them to if you like, open up and to close down to, you know, absolute privacy as needed. Mm-hmm. So back to the sort of simple communication there. Yes, and using, and actually design can allow you to express how a building is to be used and communicated without it having to be about, again, the antithesis of the NHS where you go mm-hmm. into a hospital. There's so much signage that you can't even see the sign that you're looking for you approach a receptionist and they're behind the glass screen and you can't really sort of connect with them. You come into a Maggie Centre and, you know, yes, the buildings are much smaller, but there's no signs on the toilets. So it becomes an opportunity to ask someone where's the toilet, 
the conversation, you connect with another human being and you're not being kind of reminded that you are being processed in an institutional kind of framework. You're in control over how you um, access and use the environment. And, and that's, I think, mm. part embodying what Maggie's about, which is helping people empower themselves in whatever way that's right for them. And the architecture can help that messaging. And it starts here in the West London Centre where I'm speaking to you. Mm -hmm. Um, As you start to walk on the path towards the centre, Dan Pearson, who is the landscaper, has changed the surface of the the path from that normal NHS sort of tarmac to a very fine grit. And even though people don't notice that they've changed the surface, your feet are aware and your brain starts to connect and then you're you start to realise that you're in a, a woodland um, walk um, as you approach this orange building. Do I like orange? Do I not like orange? How do I feel about it? Mm. So the action that comes through those surprises, if you like, that you weren't expecting is, again, starting the approach because we know it's difficult for people to come in the door for the first time. They don't know how they're feeling, they don't really know if they want to talk about those feelings. And that's again where design is so critical to helping shift people's emotional state without necessarily them being aware that it's been shifted. So is that something you've learnt over the years, just through working on the project? Learnt over the years and I learnt through working with outstanding architects who spend their professional lives thinking about this. Again, another example was Alex de Rijk in our Oldham Centre. He understood that um, when you're going through cancer, you often feel cold. You are, your sense of touch can be altered because of nerve damage from this sort of chemotherapy. And so he was keen to explore how, through his love of wood and understanding of wood, how you could change that experience for someone without it being, but with it also still being beautiful. And that was the first time where we'd managed to find a disabled toilet um, with all of its sort of fittings being wood. So everything you touch is warm and quiet. And yet he challenged us by the use of the colour yellow. We have this, this extraordinary yellow floor throughout the entire building. And it is wonderful and glowing and inviting. And yet most people would probably assume that yellow wouldn't be a colour that would work in a cancer health sort of setting. Mm -hmm. So it's working with architects who are willing to challenge the professional framework of, you know, you must use pale green, pale blue, pale pink because they are calming Mm -hmm. colours, which is, again, where NHS hospitals find themselves. And that in fact, sometimes using stimulating colours, thinking about the things that you're touching, um, views, and having a piece of art that, again, just makes you think, I'm not sure I like it, but it's making me think. And that's where um, I think we've been lucky at Maggie's to bring all of those different elements together to create a special place. Mm-hmm. And I think most people who visit the centres will leave feeling that their emotional state has been shifted just by the environment itself. Well, yeah, you've got lots of testimony to how much impact Maggie's centres are making on all those who visit. It's wonderful. Could I ask about looking forward? Is there anything new you need to ask of the design community? 
I spend a lot of time being curious about the role of furniture and and we've been working with a um, a wonderful uh, chair designer called Magnus Long who has designed a chair called the conversation chair. We we are interested in how we can find chairs that can accommodate all communities including the the older adult or elderly if you want to call the um, the over 70 but that aren't hideous and unattractive and so I think the design community really needs to look at the um, beautiful furniture for the older adult (laughs) and I think that that um, we should do more about so if you just think about the hideous chairs that sit in um, our care of the elderly Mm. institution they need to be revolutionized and um, and the design community is the only community that can take that on yes well that sounds like a good challenge (laughs) I hope you get some more collaborators with that is there anything else you'd like to add? No, just that at Maggie's, we are um, we are so truly grateful to to the architecture and design community, and hope that with the new endeavours of um, the new hospital buildings and etc., that the design community can infiltrate and impact on buildings across our public. Um, places because you've got a vital role to enhancing um, the quality and well-being of our um, communities and society and um, if anything Maggie is just an example of what the design community has to offer our communities. Have you seen a change in the way people are designing? I think it's very hard to incorporate change and in part we've been lucky where um, we've been able to be a repetitive client and mm. we're lucky because of Maggie's relationship with wonderful architects like Richard Rogers and Zaha Hadid that we have been able to benefit from their collaborations and contributions to understand the role of architecture and, and being a, a repetitive client means that you gain experience of what being a good client is. And so often when people come to being a client, it's often for only one building, um, but it's, it's an important and meaningful building. I think Maggie's has raised the bar. Um, we've seen at the Guys and Thomas's Cancer Centre, which was designed by Richard Rogers definitely was um, inspired by them wanting to have an outstanding institution um, but also to learn from the design community so it can be done but it requires clients to be brave and I think we need to help find and identify and educate and support those. Thank you very much. Nice to talk about the work of Maggie in this, uh, this world we're in. designers themselves, both Lionheart and Laura Lee are part of many conversations to be had around interior design and architecture. In these podcasts, we hope to speak to those within and outside the industry on the topics that matter. This episode was created during the COVID-19 pandemic, and what became clear is that our notions of space can quickly shift more than we might have thought possible. Personal and public space has expanded and contracted in proportion to our buildings and surroundings and to our distance to others. We are social distancing and making do with distant socialising. Our homes, the time we spend in them and the activities we do there has changed. Kitchens have become home schools and bedrooms have become offices. 
And with the advent of technologies such as Zoom, we not only have to mix our personal and private lives, but even have to share a window into our own homes with our colleagues. Parks such as Victoria Park in East London were planned as an island of health within the overcrowded, polluted city. But recently my local park was called a virus farm by our local paper for how many people were flocking to it to exercise and take a break from their homes. For the design industry, when events are cancelled and showrooms are closed, it's a challenge to launch projects and products without being able to visit them, experience a space for yourself or to touch a fabric or sit in a chair. But there are new spaces to explore and new ways of experiencing online. A new exhibition has just opened, online of course, at ArcDES, Sweden's National Centre for Architecture and Design. It's on the subject of ASMR, or Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, where noises stimulate a physical reaction in those who hear them. The exhibition is called Weird Sensation Feels Good, and an online video introduces you to the world of creating spine-tingling and reportedly euphoric sensations just with sound. Examples are popping bubble wrap or whispering into the microphone. The term was coined a decade ago, and since then there has been a growing online presence of ASMR videos. Perhaps when you can't touch but still want to elicit a physical reaction, this is a way to communicate. Thank you again to Lionheart and to Laura Lee for their time and conversation. And thank you to Lee Endress for the editing and music for this FX podcast. If you want to find out more about FX, find us on Twitter or Instagram at fxdesignmag or on the website Design Curial, where we have all our recent articles. If you would like to hear more of this series, you can subscribe in the usual ways with Apple or Google Podcasts. Thank you from all of us at FX. This is Talking Spaces, and I'm Sophie Tolhurst.